You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today. And I don't have a lot of time uh, to give a large preface on the scripture, so I'm going to really jump straight into it. But before I do, I just want you to think about what do you think would create an unforgettable church or church service? What we're going to look at today are the attributes of an unforgettable church. And it's quite honestly, for our church and where we're at, one of the best scriptures that we could be in the middle of this weekend. So I'm going to start in verse 1, we're going to stop along the way. We're going to go all the way to verse 12. We're going to stop along the way, give you some history, talk about some of the Scripture and different things and exposit it. But then at the very end, we're going to summarize it uh, with that idea of what is it that makes a church unforgettable. So let's start in verse 1 of Acts 20. Y'all with me? Say, I am. It starts like this. It says, when the uproar had ended. So let me give you just some history here of what's happened. If you remember last week, Paul was in the city of Ephesus. And when it says the uproar had ended, what has happened in the city of Ephesus is, yes, revival broke out. But every time, as we've established through the book of Acts, God begins to work, the enemy starts to push back. And so right after revival breaks out, there are people that make idols for a living. Well, as people start to get saved, they don't need idols anymore, and they're not making any money. So as a result, they stirred people up, and a huge riot broke out. So when the uproar had ended in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and sent out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. So in the first three verses, we see that Paul had a change of plans, and it's very important. We're going to come back to this at the end. Paul was planning on sailing for Syria, And he had a plan in his mind, but he's sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit and has enough wisdom to know, and he gets wind of that there's assassins that have been hired that are going to kill him on the boat when he sails for Syria. And so he decides, instead of sailing for Syria, I'm going to backtrack and go the exact same way that I just came through. And uh, so he goes. And this is his third missionary journey that Paul's on. The next several weeks, we're going to get into Paul's fourth missionary journey, and that's his prison tour uh, where he goes on trial. But this is his third missionary journey. Verse 4, he was accompanied, and and, and let me just tell you, verse 4, I'm going to do the best I can to say these weird names, okay? They're like Game of Thrones type names, you know what I mean? And so I'm going to do the best I can, but I am like from Tennessee, and if you think you can do it better, go start a church, and you can preach every weekend, okay, y'all? So... Everybody with me? I've told you that before. So he was accompanied. This is his entourage. He was accompanied by Sopatar, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimius from the province of Asia. I think I got most of them almost right. Matt's going to check me. Pastor Matt's going to check me later. Okay, so... I listen to that so many times on the Bible Is app, trying to get those down, like, what is it again? What is it? And so, nestled in verse 4, 
is one of the most important truths that the church has been built on. This is not something that most pastors stop on and make a big deal about. In fact, you got to do some digging to really understand it. But this truth is found in the deverence of two names that are mentioned that are traveling with Paul, Aristarchus and Segundus. Aristarchus may sound familiar to you because it's where we get our word aristocrat from. Uh, Aristarchus was someone that was most likely associated with nobility. He was from the upper class. He was probably born into wealth. And he was the prestigious class, I guess, if you will. Secundus might sound familiar to you as well because it's where we get our word second. This was a common name for slaves at the time. Uh, No matter what way you look at it, slavery in any of its forms is really, uh, it is is a degrading institution. And so slavery in biblical times wasn't the way we think of slavery as it took place in the United States, but it's still degrading. And many times for people to have slaves, they would have to, in a sense, separate the person's humanity from their slavery And so a result of that was is that many slaves did not have actual names. They had numbers. And so the most important slave in the house in biblical times would be called primos. And the second most important slave would be called, guess what, secundus. You ever feel like secundus? You ever feel like you're kind of thrown to the side? You're not important? I believe that feeling secundus is one of the greatest fears that many people have. Maybe you grew up in elementary school and high school, and when you walked into the cafeteria, you had that feeling of, I don't really have anybody. I don't have a group to be a part of. And that's followed you most likely through your whole life. I still struggle with it sometimes when I walk into places, and I'm intimidated, and I feel like I don't belong, and I feel like nobody really wants me there. Well, this truth about these two names, what it shows is, as we've said before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Here we have an aristocrat from the prestigious upper class traveling with Paul, and along with him is a second most important slave. To the Roman world, This would not just intrigue them, but it would absolutely offend them. Romans would look at the Christians and say, Can you believe that if you go to one of their meetings, you might have to sit on the front row right next to a secondary slave? You guys remember in Luke chapter 18 when when Jesus gave a parable and talked about two different people that were at the temple praying. One of them was a Pharisee, super religious, looked good on the outside, he's praying his prayer, and he's thanking God that he's nothing like the tax collectors and the sinners. And I'm so good I tithe, I'm so good I do this, I'm so good I go to church, I'm so good I fast all the time. And Jesus essentially says that guy didn't have a clue. He didn't even know God. Well, then a tax collector, the worst of the worst sinners, goes up and he prays, and he won't even look up to heaven because he honors God so much. And basically, what he does when he prays is he says, I'm not good enough. 
my heart is yours, God, and Jesus says he gets it. See, in God's kingdom, there is no socioeconomic status. God is respecter of no man. And what we see in the early church is we see all different types of people coming together to make the church, and it was unheard of. I love at Revolution Church is we're going to learn a lot of lessons about Revolution Church and explain some things about our church to you today to help you understand them. But at Revolution Church, you know, we, we got people in our church that are millionaires. And they're going to sit next to somebody in church service that may have just gotten out of prison or rehab. And I love that because that is a picture of what the true church is supposed to be. In our church, we've been blessed to have six former pastors that attend Revolution Church. Six of them. Can y'all believe that? That come to our church that have been, you know, under shepherds over congregations for a pretty lengthy amount of time. Some of them that come to our church and they're so encouraging too. I don't know how they do it because if I ever go to a church being a preacher, I'll be sitting there the whole time going, I would have said that different. Oh man, I'd preach that there. Boy, I could do better if they just let me preach, but they are so awesome at our church. I thank God for them. But, but six different pastors that may sit next to like a brand new Christian that's never even been in church their whole life. This is a picture of the church. We got it all, baby. We got it all. And the thing that we have in common, the thing that unites us, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this point because I want to make sure that you understand you're welcome here at Revolution Church. We want you here. We want this to feel like home to you. When I greet people in the lobby, what I say to them, because I don't know anybody anymore, the church is so big, but I always say to them, I'm like, man, make yourself at home. We want this to be home to you. No matter what your past is, no matter what you've been, been through, don't let the enemy tell you when you walk in here that you don't fit in, that we don't want you here, because we do want you here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen, Rev Church. And so we see this incredible unity. But also, there's a couple of reasons why Paul travels with a posse, so to speak. Number one, as we've established and really talked about at nauseum the last several weeks, Paul does better with a group of people just like all of us do. He needs the fellowship, and he needs the accountability, and he needs the encouragement. When Paul's by himself, he gets down. Remember Corinth? He was by himself. He got down. But when he's around people, it energizes him just like it does us. And secondly, one thing that isn't quite often mentioned is... I believe Paul traveled with a, with a group of people for integrity. Uh, one thing that Paul was doing here is he was actually transferring several special offerings from other churches that he was taking to a specific church. And every single time you see finances being transferred in the early church, whether through a special offering or whatever, Paul is never by himself. Notice that at every one of the churches where they took up this special offering, they have a representative from that church with Paul to take that money to where it's going. I love that. I love that. That's why we do the things we do here at Revolution Church. That's why if you try to give your offering to a staff person in an envelope, like I've told my staff, if you touch money, you're fired. Like it's like, I may give you one more chance, but if you touch money in any way, shape, or form, you're gone. So don't get upset with us. They take that from me, okay, y'all? Because two things that people don't trust the church in. They don't trust us with their kids, and they don't trust us with money. And so our staff, we don't touch money. When we count money, we have multiple people there. Nobody's ever alone with money here, just like in the early church. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. 
Kind of practical. Verse 5, let's continue. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Watch what happens. Everybody awake? Y'all good? Okay, if you're not awake, you're going to be really convicted here in just a minute, okay? And you'll see why, because, yeah. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi. And after the festival of unleavened bread, and five, after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, there's an important break that happens here in the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote the book of Luke, in this passage uses the word we. Up until this point in the book of Acts, Luke has written the book of Acts like a typical historian. Uh, He has researched and gathered facts and interviewed witnesses and double and triple checked his sources. and, And out of that, as a historian would, he's tried to create and compile an accurate account of how the church started, grew, and expanded. Well, now in this passage, we see that Paul brings Luke the historian onto the team to travel with them. And now Luke the physician, that's going to become important here in just a minute. Remember, he's a doctor, he's a physician, he's an evangelist, he's a historian. He becomes what's known as the constant companion to Paul. And so now what you're going to see for the rest of the book of Acts, the majority of the rest of the book of Acts, is it's not going to read like a history book. It's going to read more like a travel log or a diary because now it's we. Luke is with Paul. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, okay. Now let's look at verse 7, and I'm going to stop just a few words in because I want to point something out that's really important in verse 7. So verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. What's the first day of the week, y'all? Sunday. What's today? It's Sunday. What are we doing? We're worshiping together. Isn't that interesting? Probably, if you've been in church your whole life, every single time you've come together for corporate worship has mostly been on Sundays. This is the first certain example we have in the Bible of Christians worshiping together on Sunday. Not the Sabbath day, which clarifies some things for us, like Seventh-day Adventists would look at us and say, you're doing it wrong, you need to worship on Saturday, you bunch of pagans. And, of course, I would always say back to them, well, Saturday technically is Saturn's day. That's a pagan god, so you're worshiping on a pagan day more than we are. But anyway, like, like do we need to worship on Saturdays? No. In fact, Paul makes this clear in the book of Galatians. He talks about observing special days and months and seasons and and really being a slave to it because it's something legalistic. Like if you think you have to worship on a Saturday or have to worship on a Sunday or church is only on Sunday mornings or whatever, don't let it become a legalistic thing. Romans chapter 14, he writes further about it when he says one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So so Paul makes clear, and here's where we see it kind of flesh out in the church, that every day is a day that we should worship Jesus and glorify God with our lives and everything in us. Practically, the reason that the church didn't meet on Saturdays is because that's when the Jewish temple services were. So on Sundays, that was a day where the temple wasn't being used, and in most instances, they used the temple for their big meetings. And they would come together on Sunday, which was a work day, and that's important 
just a minute from now too, uh, and they would have their meetings. Also, probably the biggest reason they would meet on Sundays is what day of the week did Jesus resurrect on? Sunday. And so the early church would refer to Sundays as, maybe you've heard it like this before, it's kind of Christianese, but they would refer to it as Resurrection Day because Jesus had recently resurrected on a Sunday. So they looked and probably said, hey, what day of the week should we meet? Friday? Nah, let's do it on Sunday. Like that's the day that Jesus, you know, resurrected from the dead. So let's do it on that since he did that. This verse also tells us that they broke bread together, which means that they had a meal together whenever they got together. And uh, so when we do that in the South, like every time churches get together in the South, we always eat, right? And so this is biblical. Amen, y'all? And so you got to have biscuits and gravy when you get together. Uh, or you got to have Chick-fil-A now. Amen, y'all? Praise you. We got Christian chicken now in Cross Vegas, Tennessee. The Lord's hand is on us. The Jesus chicken is here. Closed on Sunday, though. But it's all good. We'll take it six days a week. Amen. So they have a meal together, and they probably have communion together when they get together too. So, so let me reread that, uh, what they did here. On the first day of the week, uh, we came together to break bread. Uh, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, watch what Paul does. He's such a preacher. Because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. I don't ever want another email from y'all saying I've preached too long. You know? Paul goes long, man. He is not giving a sermonette. He is giving a sermon. Now, at this church, we do believe, as one of my mentors said, you know, don't preach a 30-minute sermon in one hour. And I do think there's wisdom in keeping things succinct and and not going over you know some pastors you know they they just keep on shoveling even though the cows are full so to speak y'all know what I mean and I've got a saying that the mind can only handle what the butt can endure y'all know what I mean and so I heard somebody say one time there's a fine line between a hostage situation and a long sermon and y'all know it's true kind of stuck you can't go anywhere everybody's judging you if you get up and leave you know and so so we believe that, but at the same time, notice that in the early church, they allowed time for true teaching of God's Word. In other words, church services in the early church, they were not just an emotional pep rally on a Sunday morning. That They weren't just a motivational speech. The main purpose and focus of the church getting together, yes, fellowship and all those things, but it really, the centerpiece, and we talked about this last week, the main course was learning God's word together so that they could learn how to follow Jesus better. You know, at our church, we do things different, and, and I, I know all churches like sing songs, and we have a sermon time, and we pray, and and there's all those basic things, but those are the macro things. But in the micro, we do things really different. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with someone that was asking me, why doesn't Revolution Church have altar calls? You know, every church I've ever been in usually has an altar call at the end, and we rarely have altar calls. We may have an altar call like once a year if the Holy Spirit leads, and, and it's usually just to pray for people, but we don't have like those salvation altar calls. And uh, as I was having this conversation, it was a good conversation. We weren't heated or anything. Um, 
And let me preface this by saying this. Nothing wrong with altar calls. Okay, Altar calls are fine. Uh, they're, they're great. Maybe you got saved at an altar call, and that is wonderful. We, nothing wrong with that. It's a method. We get that. Uh, but, but, I mean, as a preacher, I love altar calls. I mean, I, I love it when people come down and, you know, pray or raise their hand and say they receive Christ. It makes me feel good. But I would say that's the problem is it makes me feel good. Y'all know what I'm saying? And so, so as I was really casting the vision we have for our services to this guy, I was like, listen, man. If you, can, if you can find an example in Scripture where, just one, where the early church or the church in the Bible had an altar call that was like the ones we have in America, then we can have a further discussion about maybe we should. But there's really not one. You know what I'm saying? Again, they're not bad. It's just a method thing, but there's not really... I mean, Day of Pentecost, you could try, try to argue that, but that was... Three to 10,000 people coming to know Christ, and you don't see anywhere where they say, raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me, or come forward and stand in the front. And, and off that conversation, I went and dug in some history and uh, started really trying to figure out, like, where did the Americanized form of church services and altar calls more specifically come from? And, and in church history, it's kind of interesting, just bear with me, man, I'm kind of like a nerd with church history, but... But in the Great Awakening that took place, the first Great Awakening, uh, it was this major revival, maybe you've heard about it before, where people got saved. But in the first Great Awakening, they didn't do altar calls like we've seen our whole lives. No, they didn't do that. They preached the gospel, and then this crazy thing happened. People just started following Jesus. I love what Pastor Matt said at his sermon to RYA a few weeks ago. He said, you know how you get saved? You follow Jesus. That's really the biblical model. You follow Jesus. What did Jesus say to all his disciples? Follow me. Well, how are you going to follow Jesus? you got to learn the word, right? And so, so I learned that in the first Great Awakening, our idea of doing church services and altar calls really didn't even happen. It was made popular in the second Great Awakening by a guy named Charles Finney. Great ministry that he had. And, of course, today we know the, the modern altar call based off Billy Graham's ministry, right? Like that's the most popular ministry. Close to, maybe you were saved under Billy Graham's ministry. That's totally fine. But, but what happened was we started to really put an impetus on this, what they call revivalism culture. And along with that is what's called decisionism. In other words, the church has to have revival. It's these emotional pleas. And you've got to make a decision in a moment, you know, this emotional, like, do it right now and pressure and you've got to do it. And for whatever reason, you're going to hell or you want your life to get better. Or you want to quit sinning or whatever. And what it's created is, <laughs> I don't know how to put this other than just saying it in a way that it may offend you, is it's created two things. Well, three things. It's created some Christians that really love Jesus. Secondly, it's created people that think they're Christians that don't know Jesus because they said a prayer at an altar when they were three years old or something like that with their friends. You know what I'm saying? And what we established last week, there's absolutely no precedence in Scripture for someone getting saved and their life not being changed. None. You can't find an example. You can't find Scripture to back it up. And thirdly, what it's created, and I think this is probably the one that's the most because this was me, is it's created a whole bunch of people that can't figure out if they're saved or not. You got no clue. Most of the people sitting in here, 
you've been saved multiple times. Every time we say the salvation prayer, you, you, at altar calls, you've come forward, you've been baptized 40 times. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying that's what it's created. And you can't figure out why when that decisionism came and that you got to make a decision and that altar call happened. Again, not hating on altar calls, but you came up front and you left and, 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 and you thought it was going to fix all your problems. And you thought that like, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to be good because I've made a decision, but you weren't good, were you? You weren't, you messed up and you still struggled and so then years later, you made another decision, and you thought the same thing. And let's be honest, y'all. Can we be honest for a minute? Everybody say amen. I mean, Billy Graham was quoted one time as saying 90 to 95% of the people that made decisions at his crusades weren't real decisions. Thank God for the 10%. But 9 out of 10 people that make that emotional decision, you guys know, I mean, come on. A month, two months, three months, six months later, they're not even going to church. They're not even following Jesus. And so that's why we, we, don't, we don't do it that way. What we really want to do is make the Word of God the centerpiece and, and the main course, so to speak, because we see this kind of played out in the early church that they did it the same way. Does that make sense to everybody say amen? amen. I hope it makes sense. Um, if it doesn't, then uh, send an email to RevMen at crossfieldrevolution.com or Rev Ladies, right? Crossfield, and they'll explain it to you because I don't know how to explain it any better. So let's continue in verse 8. Y'all with me? Say I am. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. I love that the Bible includes this because with a bunch of lamps burning, that means there's less oxygen in the room. And so there's a young man that goes to a window in order to breathe better. Watch what happens. <laughs> Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on, on and on. Hurry up, preacher. Golly. Gee whiz. I'm so glad y'all have never done that here. Right? Y'all are being quiet. Good. No amens. Nobody lied. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Boy, it gives me comfort to know that people fell asleep when Paul was preaching too. You know? I can remember as a youth pastor, I'd done lock-ins before. And in the middle of the night, we would have like a service at 2 a.m. And all the students would be doing great until that altar call moment when you're like, bow your heads and close your eyes. And then all you hear is, <laughs> you know, they just go out, man, sleeping. I told you guys a few weeks ago that there's this legend of my grandfather who was an old school Southern Baptist preacher. Somebody fell asleep in one of his old country churches. This is how they used to roll back then. So if I offend you, man, you should have been here 50 years ago and heard preachers, but somebody fell asleep and he threw a hymnal at him and hit him in the shoulder, you know? <laughs> Awesome. Wake up. Rep Church, we've had people fall asleep before. and It's not that bad till they start snoring, and then it gets awkward. Like a few weeks ago, somebody, man, just literally laid out, man, asleep. Well, this guy named Eutychus goes to sleep, and 
It's interesting, as we've talked about the meanings of names, the name Eutychus actually means good fortune or lucky. Yeah. And uh, this guy is probably a teenager that's 10 to 17 years old. And every sermon I've ever heard preached on Eutychus, he just gets hammered for falling asleep. But actually, I look at Eutychus and I'm kind of like, man, what a committed Christian this guy was. Here he is on a work day, basically the first work day, our Monday, our version of a Monday. He's worked all day. He's sitting there in the church service as a student age, right? He's, he's going and listening to Paul preach, and, and it's hot, and the lamps are burning. And a better translation of this is that he was overcome by sleep or he was nodding off. It's not that he just laid down and took a nap or, or leaned up and propped up in the window. He was nodding off. And three stories up he falls, which means 20 to 30 feet he falls after he goes to sleep. John Wesley was preaching one time, and it's said that a man fell asleep in his sermon while he was preaching, and John Wesley started to shout, Fire! 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 And the guy woke up and said, Where's the fire? And John Wesley was quoted as saying, Fire in hell for those who sleep under the preaching of God. <laughs> I think that's a pretty harsh approach, and I don't agree with that. I tend to agree with Charles Spurgeon's way of thinking when people fall asleep in church. Charles Spurgeon led a massive church, blue-collar workers, and when they would have their Wednesday meetings, which is the work day, uh, hundreds of people would come to hear him do his Bible study, and several people would fall asleep because they would be tired. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, about this once, and he was quoted as saying, I'd rather you get half a meal than no meal at all. That's kind of how I think. You know, when, when somebody falls asleep in here, you know, this ain't 1950, y'all. Everybody in this room doesn't work 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and they're off every Saturday and Sunday, that person may have worked third shift, and they're dedicated enough to be here. Man, praise God for that. Maybe they just had a baby, and the baby's keeping them up all night. You don't know. You know, they're coming to church. Now listen, come to church with your baby, but don't bring them in here to where they distract everybody. Let me give you some tips, okay? Like, this will help you, Okay. We got a great nursery. Take your baby to the nursery and let us watch them for an hour. You come in here, and I promise you, if you nod off and fall asleep during my sermon, I won't throw a hymnal at you. <laughs> we get it. Get, take a break. Praise God that you're here. I'd rather you get part of a meal than no meal at all. Amen, Rev Church? So this guy falls asleep, and he falls out of the window and dies, and then Luke pronounces him dead. And it's important to note, because it's been debated, debated before, did he just go into a coma? Did he just hurt himself when he felt? No, he was dead. Luke, what, was, what, what, what did Luke do for a living before he started being an evangelist? He was a physician. He was a doctor. There's a story of a kid who was out in his yard playing, and he found a dead squirrel. And he put the dead squirrel in a shoebox and put the lid on it and brought it inside to the house and said, Dad, I found a dead squirrel. We need to bury it. And the dad said, there's a dead squirrel in this box? And he said, yes. The dad took the lid off, and the squirrel flew out and went all over the house going crazy, insane. The point is this. 
If a little kid tells me something's dead, I might not believe him. But if somebody was laid out on the floor and one of the doctors that attends Revolution Church checks them out and says they're dead, they're dead. Like when a physician tells you somebody's dead, you can kind of bank on it. So, so this kid dies, and watch what happens. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. And just as a side note, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. It's not super important. Uh, but this is very reminiscent of what Elijah and Elisha did when they raised someone from the dead. And there's some symbolism here as, as to the connection between Paul and Elijah and Elisha because he throws his arms around him and he says, Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then watch what Paul does. Just such a preacher, man. I love Paul. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. So this kid dies, gets raised back to life, and Paul's like, let's go back up and eat some more. And i got some more like sermons I can give you guys. Like, I want to preach until the sun comes up. It says, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. My simple thought from reading this passage was this when I read it. What an unforgettable church service these people went to. Would you agree? They're never going to forget what happened on this day. I mean, can you all imagine if somebody laid out on the floor and died? Again, one of the physicians at Revolution Church said, oh, yeah, they're dead. And then I went and hugged them, and they came back to life. Well, you'd never forget it. It made me wonder, and really digging this passage to think about, what are the attributes of an unforgettable church or an unforgettable church service? I've got, I believe, one, two, three, four, five, six of them. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, six of them. He was in the first service the attributes of an unforgettable church that we can learn from this passage. Number one, an unforgettable church has a sensitivity to divine appointments. A sensitivity to divine appointments. We would never be reading this passage if Paul would have stuck to his plan and not had the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to go back through the exact same way he came and not sail to Syria. There's a sensitivity to divine appointments. In other words, churches can make plans all they want. Does this sound familiar? Somebody said this. You're making your plans and you want to do this tomorrow and this tomorrow, but they're willing to put their plans on the back burner based off what God wants them to do. That's what makes an unforgettable church. Number two, inclusion of the richest to the poorest and everything in between. One way you can tell a church is full of the Holy Spirit is because there's rich people, there's poor people, there's middle class people, there's all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, all worshiping together, all serving together, and all doing life together. Everything else just about in this world, if not everything in this world, is broken up socioeconomically. Demographically, we talk about it even in church planning, that oh, what demographic are you going to reach with your church? Every demographic. You want the rich, you want the poor, you want everything in between. Just as important, number three, third attribute of an unforgettable church, is the inclusion of the oldest to the youngest and everything in between. Here, here a teenager is at church gutting it out during a long sermon. 
And make no mistake about it, he's in the room with some more seasoned people. All age groups. You want to know if the Holy Spirit is on a church? There's all different age groups that are doing life together, that are serving together, that are worshiping together. Thank God for the seniors at Revolution Church. We need you here. If you are more seasoned in life and you've got a a little bit, you know, a little less tread on the tires, so to speak, we need you here. Don't ever think that you don't make a difference. Don't ever think that you being here, don't ever think, well, I've got a bad back now and I can't serve in the kids. What good am I? You're here. Your example, your prayers, everything you do encourages the next generation. Thank God for the older folks at Rev Church. Thank God for the young people at Rev Church. This past Wednesday, Brandon hit 100 and I don't remember, 105 students, and then he's got another 35 volunteers on top of it, but they're hitting triple digits now every single Wednesday. Pastor Donovan, RYA, he's got 40, 50 uh, RYA, 18 to 25-year-olds coming. Thank God for these young people that are jumping in, that are serving. That, that If we can be honest, the more seasoned people, one of the reasons you're at Revolution is because you see all the young people, and it energizes you. Is everybody with me? Say Amen. You're like, oh, man, these young people are crazy. They're on the front row raising their hands, worshiping. They love Jesus. What's going on here? This is weird because there's so many different generations in our church. That's how you know it's an unforgettable church. Number four, there's an attitude of we, not me. It's not about consumerism, which we can't avoid. We all struggle with that, right? But there's an attitude of we, not me. This is the fulfillment of the early church that, I don't know, we studied in the book of Philippians during our uh, joy series, right? That, that passage that says, think of others more than you think of yourself. It's what the early church did. They did life together. They broke bread together. <clears throat> they, they slowed down enough in their lives in order to prioritize spending time together, learning the word of God, and valuing each other. Yeah, they didn't have iPhones and they didn't have cars that could take them to concerts and football games and you know they, they didn't have travel ball back then. I get all that, okay? But but the value to them was doing life together. It was we, not me. Number five, there was a commitment to learning God's word. Unforgettable church has a commitment to learning God's word. It's the centerpiece, it's the main course. We talked about this last week and unpacked it pretty well. It's all about learning God's Word. Hey, Paul, you can go long. Preach till the morning time. I'm not suggesting we do that here, okay, y'all? I'm just saying, like, they, 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 they had no issue with that. They were soaking it up. They wanted to learn, how do we follow Jesus more closely? How do we become more like Him? Teach us, Paul. Teach us. We want the Word of God. Number six, they had grace and mercy for each other. Grace and mercy for each other. This poor kid dies after falling asleep, and nowhere do you see anyone chastising him, kicking him out of the church. You dishonored Paul by falling asleep. No, they had grace and they had mercy for each other to move forward with the gospel. You see that, Rep Church? Say amen. My prayer for us is that we are an unforgettable church, that we have unforgettable services. That people walk in and can tell there's something different. Rev Church has all those attributes.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for every single person that is here. Uh, again, we thank you for the book of Acts, longest series I think we've ever done. And, uh, uh, man, we're learning so much about how to do church and how to be the church and, and how do we make it more biblical, and today is no exception. God, I just uh, I pray that we do everything we can to be obedient to you, to glorify Jesus in everything that we do, to take your words and allow them to mold us as a corporate group of people that gather together and make up your church, but also individually, God, that each of us would bear that responsibility. We love you, Lord. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. We love you guys. You're dismissed. We'll if you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.